Welcome to Investment Magazine's new podcast series entitled The Future of Super, an in-depth series of conversations with key decision makers, leaders, agitators, and stakeholders in policy, regulation, and from within the industry. At a time when the superannuation system is being asked important questions about its purpose, efficiency, and ability to deliver appropriate member outcomes. We will be exploring topics vital to those responsible for governance, operations, and investment outcomes of funds through this series of conversational style interviews. Please visit investmentmagazine.com.au or get in touch to join the conversation. And now, please enjoy this episode. AIA Australia is a leading life and wellbeing specialist with nearly 50 years experience and a commitment to help Australians live healthier, longer, better lives. Visit aia.com.au to find out more. This episode of The Future of Superannuation will look at responsible investing in the contemporary context and hopefully get into a bit of free-flowing conversation about the risks and obligations relating to climate change. I'm Matthew Smith and I'm Managing Editor at Investment Magazine. There have been some critical developments in how funds, society, and indeed how regulators and courts have interpreted asset owner obligations in this area. I'm very pleased today to be joined by David Barden, Principal of Equity Generation Lawyers, and Lisa McDonald, Head of Responsible Investing at Aware Super. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Matt. Great to have you both. (laughs) Great to have you both on board. Lisa, you've been a specialist in this position with within, uh, I suppose it was First State Suver and now Aware for some 14 years. And and I'm interested in your view on how funds, obligations, and dare I say it, awareness has evolved in this area over that time. Yeah, great. Thanks, um, Matt. I think, um, you know, at Aware Super, we've certainly had that responsible investing lens in terms of how we invest for some time. And if I go back, you know, sort of to the first date super days, it was from 2008 when we joined the PRI. So responsible investment or ESG integration is not new. It's something that we've been focused on since we joined the PRI, but it has evolved a lot. And I think it's evolved to the point where there is a recognition from our members um, in terms of the impact packs of some of these issues that that can have on their retirement savings. Integrating, and I'll use the acronyms, environmental, social and and governance and that responsible investment approach is, you know, just part of what we do and have been doing for some time. We're seeing the financial implications really coming through in terms of our investment Hmm. um, decision making and and how we think about it from an an impact lens as well, and particularly a financial impact. Mm, Yeah, and really looking forward to getting into some of those areas with you as well, Lisa. Um, David, uh, I'd, I'd say within the superannuation community, you're perhaps best known for bringing this landmark climate risk case against Res, which resulted in a settlement on behalf of a fund member. And, and that, again, is something I'm really looking forward to getting a bit of insight and background with you on a moment. But first, yeah, just interested in your, your view. I mean, the, the evolution seems to have happened quite quickly. I, I think one of the major triggers was the, um, was the Paris Agreement in 2015. Mm-hmm. And, and even though governments may not have been doing much at the time, and, and it may have been um, largely promise. It was a massive signal to the um, a massive market signal to the financial sector, mm. and as a result, you, you started to see not just not just funds, but but members demanding more. 
from their superannuation funds and and getting involved, um, um, asking questions, uh, going to to websites like market forces to find out more information about what funds are doing and and really really agitating for not just better outcomes for the community but but also better financial returns and it's it's really encouraging to see this develop into um, what some might say is a, is a race to the top. I'm interested in your perspective on how far funds have come along in their in their journeys and how much kind of more they have to go. I think uh, most if not all funds now understand that climate change is a material financial risk mm. to the fund and its investments and that that creates uh, an imperative for um, for a whole lot of things to happen for for the fund to um, to understand that risk and then and then to manage it. So so we've come a come a long way in in a number of years um, where where previously the position was was to push back against that and to say, look, this is mm. you know this is an ESG issue. It, it's not necessarily a, a core financial consideration that we we need to make. And um, and 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 since since that has flowed through funds, you you start to see a whole whole bunch of better disclosure on on exposure to um, to carbon emissions and, and and sectors in the economy and 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 a whole lot of mechanisms put in place to reduce those risks. And how do you think, David, um, the precedent in relation to what's happening in the courts and uh, we've seen regulatory guidance come out recently as well, how much is that helping to get funds on the forward-thinking page? Yeah, look, I think it's very helpful. I, I think without member pressure and, and member engagement, um, the majority of funds would not be where they are today. Um, what we see via via court action and, and what we see via the, the settlement in, in the rest case is... Um, is a strong indication of, of what's required now and, and, and how to develop um, climate risk strategies going into the future. So, so REST, for example, um, put in a, um, you know, a net zero by, by 2050 promise. Mm. Yep. Um, it, it, it would engage with governments and corporations to, 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 to get there and, and it also put in a, a whole swathe of um, risk management Systems as well as disclosing their entire portfolio. So, so it was a re- that was a really strong signal. And and the, the advices that we see um, Noel Hutley and James Mack put out are, are really really helpful um, for for funds. I suggest as, as well as members to understand. And and, and APRA as well is um, is is coming along and, and making some very strong statements around climate change and um, and is currently consulting on um, on a risk management framework. Yeah. So, Lisa, how, what about from your perspective, some of the things that David mentioned there? I support David's comments on the regulatory kind of framework and reviews that are coming in, you know, with the Hutley report, um, the REST case and some of those recommendations that came out of there and then the APRA consultation. You know, we are, as trustees and as a super fund, being asked to consider climate risk um, as part of our fiduciary duty. And I think it's really important that we are being asked to do that. And it's sort of, you know, I think each fund will do it differently, but there's certainly, there is... Absolutely, um, the impetus to be considering this as a financial risk in your investment decisions. Yeah, and could you give me a, a little bit of a colour, perhaps, on how the 
um, announcement of the REST settlement, new regulatory guidelines from APRA. Can you just give me a little bit of colour about how that's kind of landed within internally and and some of the, the you know, has that um, f- fueled or, or, or made more yeah. um, urgent some of the, the conversations you've kind of been having? I, I think the discussions now, well, for aware super, it's not new. I think the discussions now with the Hutley report and the APRA consultation paper brings, um, you know, other funds on the journey and for them to be considering this if they haven't been. Um, So, it certainly, you know, heightened the discussion within the fund in terms of what Mm -hmm. we're doing, but we're probably more looking at what's up recommending we're doing, what did the rest settlement case have, what does the Hutley report recommend and and where are we sitting on that journey and, you know, what more, you know, should we be doing or could we be doing and or are we kind of meeting, you know, the expectations of the regulators and our members? Are there funds that need to move quicker than they currently are? Um, it's difficult to say. In, in many ways, um, I, I'm not sure if it's appropriate for, um, for, for the, the key position of, of, of a fund or, or a bank to be um, educating their, um, their, their consumers or shareholders or members. It, it, it really should be there for them to, to lead from the front, and especially in the case of superannuation funds. Um, I mean, the first step is disclosure. Yep. We see a lot of funds putting out um, reports on on the, the emissions intensity or, or emissions exposure of, of certain portfolios, which is essentially a, a, a proxy for the, the financial risk of climate change. But in many cases, it's difficult to tell how they're actually translating that, that knowledge to... Um, to protecting their members, and so so it's a two-step process under the law. You, um, as a fund, um, you you need to um, firstly understand the risk, and 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 we see that that happening, and, and we see a lot of disclosures. But when it comes to, to managing the risk, it's it's still unclear. It's it's still not clear in many cases how how these instructions flow through to investment managers. Often there's there's pushback around, um, you know, funds just want to let their investment managers do what they do yeah. and, and, and not not hassle them. So so there's still a lot of work to be done. I want to go back to something David said about that it's not a fund's role to educate their members. Um, I, I, I honestly think it is. Um, there's a lot of misinformation about there and I think the more we can tell our members what we're doing and why we're doing it, it's really important. When we did release our climate change portfolio transition plan, yes, we had a lot of members coming to us going, oh, fantastic, great to see you moving on this, acknowledging it. We also had some members that were very unhappy with the position that we'd taken. Um, so it is a balancing act in terms of representing all of your members, but we still you know, from a trustee perspective, it is in the best financial interest for our members to consider this risk and to consider it as a risk and how it um, does, you know, um, come through in our investment decision making. I think there's a lot more, you know, that we can do in terms of communicating how we're doing it. And I think that's the evolution you'll see over the next few years, particularly as funds have committed to targets um, and members are going to hold us to account on those targets and how we're achieving them. Um so it sort of 
going to um, fund managers and how we do that, we have over 120 external right. fund managers um, that we appoint across all different asset classes. And we do have a monitoring process in place with those as well. We do due diligence, um, you know, when we appoint a fund manager and on an ongoing basis in terms of how they're managing climate change risk in their portfolio. It is an engagement process with them. Mm. Um, we certainly see some leaders um, and we certainly see some laggards, but it is our role as the um, the super fund and giving the mandate to the manager to ensure that they're investing in line with our, you know, our mandate and the mandate that we do give to them. Um, the we have a private equity manager that we've worked really closely with. And the private equity market's really interesting because there's not a lot of information available or publicly available that you can, um, you know, get to be able to sort of identify the good um, uh, private equity managers or the funds and their underlying holdings even. Um, but they've committed to net zero and they've committed to putting targets in place in all of their underlying um, companies and established a... Um, uh, basically an emissions council and the GPs, so us as the investors, sit on that council mm -hmm. and we're kind of holding them to account in terms of how they're reducing the emissions in the, their investee companies um, as well. So we're seeing that move and we're seeing that shift um, mm -hmm. and it's, you know, it absolutely is incumbent on us to, to understand how our managers are managing their money and that's part of our due diligence process. Yeah. And have you awarded or taken away mandates on the basis of your responsible investing um, guidelines or principles? Uh, so we absolutely, every manager that we appoint goes through a due diligence process and we've got to be comfortable that how they're integrating ESG aligns to, to what, you know, what we want to see. But I think it's really important to understand that if then, you know, if there are some gaps it's actually, we want to work with those managers to bring them up. You know, you know, when we signed the PRI and embedding ESG integration and embedding, you know, responsible investment being mainstream, it's about all of our managers thinking this way. So, if we don't give them the opportunity and we don't, you know, work with them in terms of what we want to see, then we're never going to get to it being mainstream. So, yeah. it really, from our perspective, there may be some gaps in some of the managers that we appoint, but then it's about that monitoring and it's about that improvement. Um, in the PE space, there may be some that we haven't um, done further funds with because we just haven't seen them move far enough from our expectations. Yeah, okay. And David made that point earlier about sometimes the fund managers don't really like being told how to invest money and, um, you know, it's part of that conviction that perhaps even makes them quality managers, whether it be internal or external. Can you give me a little bit of colour further around those types of conversations? I mean, can you really um, preach to a fund manager about, how, you know, how they invest their money? Oh, look, I might, um, going away from climate change for a moment, um, you know, we divested tobacco back in 2012 and we had some interesting conversations with fund managers back then who weren't prepared to take tobacco out of their portfolio. And so the mandate was terminated because that's not how we wanted to invest our members' money. So um, I, there is absolutely a recognition um, now, and particularly with the number of large fund managers, if they've signed the PRI, if they've committed to net zero targets or they've committed to certain things, there is that alignment. So, there is a really, you know, a, a great alignment in terms of how we're investing our members' money. I think there's, um, you know, when we did the thermal coal divestment and we said to our managers, here's, you know, you can no longer invest in that. Not one of them ha had an issue with that. A absolutely not. At AIA, our dream is to champion Australia to be the healthiest and best protected nation in the world. To achieve this, 
we are continuously innovating to develop and deliver customer-led life, health and well-being propositions that help people live healthier, longer, better lives. To find out more, visit aia.com.au. And is there anything you'd add, um, David, on the investment manager agreements? Are you seeing a standard or a best practice out there and how's that area evolving? Yeah, look, it's it's difficult um, to say from from the outside, but it is it is incumbent on the funds and, and the funds will look at their across-the-board risk and, and, you know, that can be ascertained by, by scenario analysis. So, so the, the trustee really needs to control that risk and, and, and where it sees um, the fund being overweight in, in certain sectors or certain companies where, where the risk might be, might be too, too great for the investment objectives. And, and this is what precisely Noel Hartley says is, is that, that analysis um, can, can lead to divestment. And, and that, you know, if, if a fund manager um, doesn't agree with the, the trustee who has um, all the information and expert advice at their disposal, then I totally agree that they should go. Yeah, yeah. One thing I want to try to get to in this conversation, which I find fascinating, is climate risk has a, a longer term time frame. And, you know, you may agree or disagree with that and really interested in your thoughts around that. But certainly in the shorter term, some of the value you might be leaving on the table in the medium term, you know, the resources sector is doing really, really well, providing great income for portfolios versus some of the risks that might maybe perhaps have a longer longer tail. I'd, I'd probably push back against the comment that these these risks aren't aren't being felt now. Um, mm-hmm. um, you know, this this is what this is what a, a good investment manager should do is is looking for the future, and and that's what the market should do, and and that's the idea of of having companies disclose you know their exposure to to fossil fuels and disclose their plans, and and to have this this idea of um, climate risk priced into the market. Yeah, look, I would um, I would agree that we're actually seeing the financial implications playing out now in in some um, instances. If we think about the recent um, or not so recent a year ago, the bushfires um, and the more severe weather against uh, the more severe weather events we're seeing around flooding and fires and and the destruction in communities, the companies we're invested in operate in these communities. So when they can't operate due to flood or fires, yep. there's an impact to that company immediately. And there's an impact to their share price. Um, and for some companies, their ability to operate, they may have lost their whole operation. So I think that, you know, we are long-term investors. We have patient capital. Um, and But we are seeing a number of the, um, you know, particularly climate risks sort of playing out immediately mm. as well. From and, and, you know, we are thinking about that over the lifetime and the journey of a member. So we have members joining us now that are going to be here well past 2050, that we're trying to sort of, you know, manage their retirement savings and, and think about climate change and how we're going to manage that risk in the portfolio. So, so, so I think there's always a balancing act of the shorter term versus the longer term. But we are long-term investors and we, and we do need to, to think long-term as well um, with some of the investments that we make. Um, you know, as part of our climate change portfolio transition plan, we we did do a lot of work around thermal coal um, and in terms of whether it was a stranded asset risk or not. And we expect markets to be pricing in stranded asset risks and, and signalling. So, we um, 
obviously engage as part of our strategy as well with companies, but it's about that transition and being focused on the transition and what that looks like uh, and how we can support communities through transition. So, um, there's lots of, I guess, you know, is divestment the answer or is it about engagement to get better outcomes in communities that are going to be severely impacted by this and, and how as we as investors can support that transition as well. David, so yeah, really interested in a little bit of background on, on how this rest case came about and perhaps you know, how you're seeing the, the push from consumers. Yeah, sure. Look, um, I mean, I, I guess we do see um, people of all ages pushing funds, pushing banks, pushing um, insurers, um, you know, to, to, to get on board and, and to to be a part of a hasty transition. Mr. Mr. McVeigh's case was was um, you know member driven. It, it was him demanding his his fund look after him essentially, right. d- demanding that that they they protect his investments. Um, and and they were sort of in a position at, at the start of, of that litigation where where they had an um, an ESG strategy that. That didn't actually um, have a climate policy, or or um, or any other sort of visible way in, in which um, members could be assured that they were being protected. Um, where where we've got to from there, and, and I think it's an interesting evolution, is that um, the the latest uh, advice by by Noel Hutley, who's a senior barrister in, in Sydney and very well. Uh, respected, um, quite rightly recognises that from a financial perspective, um, some of these climate change risks can't be diversified. You see damage to communities, you, you see damage to um, to investments, to, to businesses who've been exposed to, to bushfires and, and flooding. And the, the analysis um, suggests that as climate change gets worse, so will so will people's investment returns. So, so you've, you've got um, funds in a situation where they actually are in a position to, to lead the charge in terms of shaping the economy, um, leading the charge in terms of um, ensuring that, that um, government policies are, are appropriate and don't actually create risk to their own members. So, so there's, there's a lot of, lot of power in, in superannuation funds. Um, they, they should be um, very well educated um, themselves around climate change risks and they should turn that, that knowledge in, into action and, and really, really um, important, strong action on, on behalf of um, their members who are engaged and on behalf of the members who, who aren't engaged but will, will also otherwise suffer. What, what are you working on now? Um, we are we are working on a um, climate risk disclosure case mm. for um, Australian sovereign bonds. Um, so that's next in court at the end of July, and, and that that seeks um, the government to disclose to um, to investors the the risks that come along with um, with sovereign bonds um, and and how climate change can influence them. So obviously, we we see um, future projections around. You know GDP and productivity, and mm. and you know taxable income streams, and and we're asking the the government to disclose climate change risks to investors. So so again, these risks can be priced in. Um, depending when this um, pod, podcast comes out, we're awaiting a um, a decision in our um, class action where eight students and their their non um, litigation representatives have 
sought a declaration and injunction from the federal court in Melbourne that the Minister for the Environment owes them a duty of care to protect them from the future harms of climate change. Right. And, um, and that relates to a, an extension project for a coal mine up in northern New South Wales. So we're eagerly awaiting that. Look, um, this has been a really rich and interesting conversation. So I really appreciate um, you know um, great expertise and, and comments uh, coming through there. And Lisa, an interesting area to perhaps conclude on is some of the opportunities that maybe your investment teams and the fund generally is seeing in in relation to its responsible inventing uh, invest, investing approach. Yeah, look, I think it's certainly um, the most exciting part of all of this is trying to identify the opportunities and what we can invest in, um, particularly to support that transition to a low-carbon economy. I do want to, you know, I think the policy environment really needs to support investors in Australia um, in terms of having some clear policy and a clear direction in terms of what will support that transition. You know, we see um, Europe, New Zealand, um, and, you know, even the US really sort of leading in this space. Um, so, we, you know, part of our role is to also advocate for policy and for policy that supports um, that long-term investment and particularly in, in when it comes to renewables in Australia, et cetera. So, we're, we're you know, we continue to, to sort of, I guess, lead the charge on that because we do want to invest in, you know, renewables in Australia. We do want to mm. create jobs we do want to, you know, build back stronger as or build back better as everyone's sort of saying. But, you know, we certainly need the policy direction to support us. And I guess a strong commitment to, to what we're investing in is the future as well, because it is our members' money that we're investing in. And, and seeing as you put that on the table, Lisa, I mean, anything from the budget uh, recently that you think um, supports that? Or do you think, where do you think there needs to be a lot more? Oh, yeah, look, we did a, a, some work on that. I think, um, you know, the few positives, but they've got a long way to go. Even thinking about electric vehicles, you know, we, we see all every other country really supporting that. Um, so to to sort of even transition to electric vehicles and a, a number of different things, it's certainly, um, you know, a lot of things in the in the budget that we would um, we would have liked to have seen more and, and definitely more policy direction in terms of supporting investments in renewables in Australia. Yeah, I think we probably could have spent an entire episode <laughs> starting with that, that topic. Yeah, um, but, you know, we've decided to focus this one on, um, you know, but, more on that yeah. governance aspect. Um, but, but de- you know, Absolutely. definitely. Uh, but, but I think, you know, communities, um, people impacted in communities will, you know, lead the charge on this. And, you know, it, it, it comes through then in investments. It comes through in how we think about things. And, and we really need to be able to have a strong dialogue with government um, in terms of getting policy that, that does support, you know, um, a positive future. Well, I mean, is it to, okay, well, then to what extent is it the role of the superannuation fund um, to take that leadership role? I mean, does, um, you know, marching in the streets and, you know, quite a lot of people um, with, you know, placards, you know, to calling for Probably climate risk change we'll do. doesn't seem to do a lot, you know, without wanting to be no. controversial relating to the government. But, I mean, what can superannuation funds do more of? 
Yeah, look, I think um, superannuation funds committing to net zero targets sure. and putting in short-term, medium-term and long-term targets. And then I guess um, the fund managers that we invest in setting those short-term, medium-term and long-term targets. What about targets. in an activist perspective? Is there anything for uh, No, look, I think our role is to engage um, and to engage for, you know, um, positive outcomes. So it's it's certainly more of a, a constructive dialogue position we'd prefer to take. And that's how we work with companies as well yeah. in terms of if, you know, we want them to set targets. I mean, this, it sort of comes from companies setting targets, reducing their emissions. Therefore, our portfolio has, you know, emissions reduction. So, there is that real advocacy and engagement piece with who we invest in, the companies we invest in, but but then also government as well. Yeah. Is there anything you'd add there, David, on, on the government? Oh, look, it, it seems to be a, a clear case of managing the transition risk. And, and, you know, um, however um, funds or, or bodies related to funds wish to engage with the government um, would, would be welcome as long as um, members are, at the end of the day, protected. And, yeah. and the, the sort of common view out there is that the longer uh, it takes for us as a country to transition to a low-carbon economy, the, the more it's going to hurt us. Yeah. Well, Greg, uh, thanks so much, uh, David and Lisa. It's been a fascinating conversation and um, really appreciate uh, your um, input. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, thanks so much, David. Matt. Thanks, Lisa.